Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined from uh, beautiful Cape Town, South Africa, for, by Kobus uh, Van Staden, who's at the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University. Kobus, how are you this afternoon? I'm good, thank you. I'm feeling like I'm sitting right in the middle of a rain cloud. It's it's very very foggy, yeah. but uh, beautiful nonetheless. Uh, you know, as I said, I'm a big fan of Cape Town, so I always uh, I've been critiqued actually for saying how beautiful it is always down there and not actually referencing the fact that other South African cities are equally as beautiful. So I, this is not to the detriment of other South African cities. So I just want to yeah, but Cape Town Cape Town is a bit of a beauty queen. It really it, it is, is very beautiful. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, normally there is a female voice who joins us on this podcast, Anne Sherman, but she is at this moment on a bus from New York to Washington, so she will not be joining us, but she is here in spirit. And uh, Anne, of course, is the moderator and the kind of community manager of our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We do hope that you will be able to kind of check out the page, friend it, uh, follow some of the discussions that we're having, and conveniently, one of the discussions that we had featured a gentleman by the name of Vijay Vikram who participated and he reached out to us uh, to kind of come on the show to talk about some of the ideas that we've discussed on the page and we're thrilled that he's with us. Uh, Vijay, you are a master's candidate at the University of Chicago in social sciences. You also have a website slash think tank slash kind of movement underway for the center right in India. And uh, But your specialty at the University of Chicago, correct me if I'm wrong here, is in the interaction between non-Western and Western civilizations and societies. And that's why we're thrilled to have you on the show today. Welcome from Chicago. A good morning to you. Hi, good morning, Kobus. Good morning, Eric. Great w- to be on. Wonderful. So we're going to talk about three topics today. Uh, we're going to first focus on the killing of a Chinese mine supervisor in Zambia, which has really brought an enormous amount of attention to the question of Chinese labor standards, uh, not only in Zambia, but also uh, incidents are now popping up elsewhere on the continent, uh, some uh, reports coming out of Chad of abusive working relationships there. And it's really one of the issues that just gets under the skin of a lot of people, uh, not only on the continent, but it's also a lightning rod for criticism of the Chinese in Africa uh, and really came to a flashpoint, came to a head uh, this past week in Zambia at the Kolam Mine. Then we're going to transition to China-India to take advantage of Vijay's presence here. Uh, We're going to step back a little bit, do a little more higher level analysis, uh, not rooted in any particular uh, news event of the week, but to really talk about this kind of competition as it's framed by the Indians um, in terms of the presence of the Chinese and the Indians in Africa. And finally, we're going to end on Confucian modernism. And if that doesn't entice you to stay for the end of the show, I don't know what does. Confucian modernism, and that is this idea that westernization and modernization are not the same things. These are being represented most clearly in places like Rwanda and Ethiopia, that the Chinese economic model, and in some cases that political model, is also being exported and implemented. We'll get Vijay's and Kobus's opinions on that. So let's get started. Kobus, first, it was a, you know a hot week on Twitter and on across the blogs and the, the interwebs discussing the reaction to the killing of a Chinese mine supervisor at the Kolam mine. This Kolam mine, just refresh us, has been, you know, really a flashpoint. Uh, last year it was, there was a shooting that was there. What is the significance of this mine? And bring us up to date just a quickly on what the, what, what, what's been the reaction to the killing. Well, the Colum mine is, is a mine in southern Zambia. It's uh, it's a coal mine. Um, it's owned by non-first China Africa. 
which is a Chinese state-owned enterprise. Um, last year, um, after a, a lot of uh, complaints about bad labor relations and also uh, complaints that, that kind of, you know, became uh, kind of seized on, you know, kind of during the, the Zambian, uh, you know, election last year, um, there was an incident where workers rioted and then uh, the Chinese supervisors opened fire. Now, a, a bunch of people, um, you know, kind of implied that they were shooting into the crowd. What apparently, in fact, happened was that they were shooting at the ground, um, kind of warning shots, but uh, perhaps maybe Chinese is China's generally not a gun a gun culture. Uh, you know, people from gun cultures realize that you shoot into the air, otherwise you have ricochets. And what happened is they had ricochets, and then you know, eleven people were wounded. Um, so what happened last week? Um, actually, it, it apparently happened in almost exactly while we were taping was um, last week that um, uh, there was again riots. This time. Um, due to the non-implementation of new um, minimum wage laws um, at the mine. Um, and the miners grabbed a, a very heavy mine trolley and kind of pushed it at a Chinese um, mine supervisor called Wu Shengzai, who was 50 years old, um, as he was running away, trying to get away from them, um, and they crushed him. Um, and more, more mine managers were wounded, um, and they were, in the, they were in, the, in the hospital for a while, and then 12 people were arrested um, by the Zambian authorities, and one was charged with murder. So in the aftermath of this, the Chinese really kind of did sound the alarm to the government in Lusaka, saying that they were demanding the security of their, of their, of their employees and their investments there. Now, it's important to kind of talk about the significance of, of the Chinese investments in, in Zambia. Six billion dollars so far to the, you know, have been invested there. Uh, One billion in the iron copper, uh, the iron industry alone. So it's a massive, massive role in the economy. And this is a, a 20, you know, out of 20 billion dollar GDP. So at the end of the day, the Chinese presence is significant. Now, what's interesting was the response from Michael Sada, who, you know, who has been a longtime critic of the Chinese and one who has played that populist anti-Chinese card probably better than anybody else. And yet he came out in support of the Chinese and their demand for security and said that Zambia is, in fact, a safe place for foreigners to invest. Um, I wonder how that might have gone down in, you know, in Zambia. Uh, there are trials now getting underway and arrests have been made for the people involved in this killing. Um, you know, Kobus, it brings up this idea that, you know, where does Michael Sada, you know, play this? How, you know, does he, on the one hand, he seems like, you know, he's going back on his traditional anti-Chinese kind of platform. On the other hand, he is using this to, to rally, to say that the Chinese need to respect minimum wage laws. They need to respect labor rights. Um, what kind of, what do you think Michael Sada's thinking right now? Yeah, that's a, such a difficult question because, in the, you know, kind of Michael Sada is obviously is, is walking such a fine line. Um, you know, the Chinese engagement with is, is completely crucial to Zambia's economy. Um, and also the, the other complication in this story is that a lot of people are, um, uh, you know, and I think he's probably, he's probably tempted to also respond to it in this way, as if the Chinese were refusing to implement uh, minimum wage laws. What was actually happening was that apparently this mine was one of the first, um, you know, of, the, of all the mining companies in Zambia to meet with 
unions. They had already instituted a deal with, with the, the unions themselves. The, the, the workers apparently had agreed that the, the minimum wage would only be paid in August because the, the bookkeeping had already been done for July. And then apparently, you know, kind of whether it's the same workers who agreed or other workers, you know, the workers became upset when they when they realized that the you know kind of as as they had agreed that you know kind of when when they opened their paychecks for July and found that the minimum wage had not been included so you know kind of the, it's it, it's not as if this mine had had completely uh, you know ignored minimum wage laws they had already stepped up and started kind of implementing these wage laws it was it was a kind of a uh, probably it, it seems like either a miscommunication or some kind of uh, you know administrative blip um, that the Cause this kind of blow up, but it's probably also indicative of the kind of level of kind of poisonous labor relations that were going on going on there for a while. Sure, and you know, Vijay, when you look at stories like this, I know this isn't something that you necessarily follow very closely. Uh, what's your reaction to this? I mean, actually, coming out of of India, where also there are you know chronic labor relations problems, as we know, but they also have a very strong union movement there. What are your reactions when you see a, a story like this appear in the press? Uh, well, yes, it is quite interesting um, to observe because China has such a broad engagement with Africa. There are so many Chinese citizens living in Africa, so much Chinese economic engagement in Africa. And perhaps the Chinese are not doing a very good job of uh, treating the Africans well. And so from, a, from, from an Indian uh, uh, standpoint, it is, it is quite interesting uh, to observe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let me just give you a, a sense of what we're talking about. So 60% of the population lives on less than a $1.25 uh, a day. You know, some complain that they're earning through the, the column mine $173 a month. So this the riot began, and this is from an AFP report, uh, when they received their paychecks for July, seeing that they now earn less than the new minimum wage for shopkeepers of $227. So that kind of talks about this, the dynamic that's been at play there. Uh, you know, but for a country like Lusaka, I mean, uh, like Zambia, uh, you, you know, these types of jobs and this type of investment is absolutely critical for the future of the company. But uh, country, but at the same time, Cobus, um, you know, this is one of those flashpoint issues. So let's go through them. One of them is Chinese labor. Uh, the other one is the Chinese management. And the other is the extraction of natural resources and this kind of pillaging of natural resources that really seem to dominate the coverage uh, of the Chinese in Africa. And, you know, Kobus, you brought up this really great, you set this link up uh, from the chief foreign correspondent of the Daily Telegraph, who wrote what I consider to be the most boneheaded editorial that I've ever read. Uh, and that's saying quite a bit. He says, uh, you know, basically said, if this was a British company and a British, you know, were treating people this way, then there would be outrage, the stock price would fall. And this is this one incident in Zambia is emblematic of everything about the Chinese in Africa. What were your thoughts on, uh, I mean, I kind of, you know, set it up in a loaded way, but what were your thoughts, Cobus, on David Blair's editorial? I completely agree. It this it, it really upset me. And um, you know, kind of because, you know, in, in, you know, he says things like, you know, kind of well, you know, when you hear of the, of, an, of a new kind of multi billion dollar deal between China and a poor African country, think of what has happened at the Column Mine. While Beijing likes to claim that you know it forges win win partnerships with African nations, the reality is that one side tends to win a great deal more than the other. And then one of the <laughs> what was just too too rich for me is he then goes on. To talk about how uh, you know, kind of how the Chinese are uh, bad managers, 
because there's because and, and one of the reasons is that there is no common language between Chinese and Africans and you know but but not referencing to the you know the kind of historical reasons as to why there might be a common language between British managers and you know and and, and their Zambian workers I'm um, you know kind of like you know two three hundred years of the most brutal kind of colonialism known to humankind um, you know so it's just it's just completely ridiculous and, and you know what what kind of made me you know the shooting that we saw at the same mine last year uh, you know as we just, as we actually mentioned last week that became emblematic of china africa relationships in a million billion kind of articles afterwards you know it was the one thing that was quoted you know over and over and over again and i had to wonder whether this is now going to be that on steroids you know um whether because it 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 tends to fall fold into two um, two very convenient narratives for the West. On the one hand, the Chinese are these kind of cruel overlords, and on the other hand, the, the, the Africans are kind of like irrational, crazy savages. You know, kind of it, 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 it feeds into two racial stereotypes, not only one. Yeah, and the frustration that I had, you know, and this was also a discussion that was on this, uh, you know, China-Africa Google group that a lot of academics belong to, it was there's not a lot of context being brought to this. Now, let me bring you back to an incident that happened last year. Uh, a Chinese foreign exchange student or foreign student at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles was shot and killed uh, in an act of criminal violence. I mean, there, there's nothing else to it. Um, you know, the American media, the way they characterized it was, well, these things happen in, a, in big cities and these things happen, uh, you, you know, in a country with lots of guns. You know, obviously the Chinese media, you know, took it and went panic. But at the same time, the Chinese media was very, very nuanced in their coverage and said, listen, these are big cities. These are these things kind of happen. What I think is so interesting in watching the media coverage of this event is, you know, boneheads like David Blair, you know, take this one element and, you know, transcended across this extraordinarily complex, large relationship, as Vijay talked about, and say it somehow represents everything about the Chinese in Africa. So we're talking about this massive Chinese investment, about a million Chinese people who are living there, and he's blanket condemned them right up front from one incident. Now, this is a particularly intense, you know, situation in a, in a coal mine that has lots of history in a country that is probably the, the biggest flashpoint of the continent in terms of Sino-African relations. So that was my frustration. So I, we'll, we'll go ahead and post the, the David Blair article uh, on, on the Facebook page um, just for, and to get your reaction as well to see what you think of it. You might agree with him. Uh, you know, both Cobus and I seem to think he's, you know, kind of, a, you know, an idiot. But uh, we'd like to hear what you have to say. So let's move now more into Vijay's territory. Um, we will no doubt come back and revisit the issue of Chinese Hello. labor. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the question of China and India in Africa. Now, this has been one of these issues that the Indians seem to talk about a lot more than the Chinese do. And this is, <laughs> and, that, uh, and that really kind of goes to the heart of the, the Sino-Indian kind of competition where the Indians really feel like they're in competition with the Chinese, and the Chinese tend to, well, you know, ignore the Indians. Um, but just to give you an idea, uh, about in 2011, there was uh, about $50 billion of investment from India in Africa, uh, dwarfed three times by the Chinese at $166 billion. So it's still a sizable investment, but at the end of the day, uh, not really in competition. The main idea, and this is what I'd like to talk about with Vijay, is this idea that India's putting forward. India is saying, the Chinese may be able to bring you factories, the Chinese may be able to bring you economic development, but at the end of the day, 
we bring you democracy and pluralization. That's what India can bring. Uh, and that's where India's kind of competitive advantage over China is when it comes to Africa. Um, I will contend, and I'd like to get Vijay's response, that when you are looking at, at this from the point of view of an African leader or an African economic planner or an African political leader, you know, and you see what economic models would be best applied to your own country, um, I contend, and I'm probably going to get quite a bit of mail, that India has a lot less to offer than China. And, uh, and I'd like to kind of get your thoughts uh, on this, Vijay, in terms of how the two are presenting themselves and what this might mean for, you know, as you kind of characterize it, non-Western civilizations who are looking for different economic models and different political models to enhance their societies. Yes. Well, um, Eric, I think you framed it quite well. And I agree with most of uh, what you have said. Uh, when it comes to the material capacities of India and China, clearly India is not is not able to offer the same sort of material investments that the Chinese can. When it comes to the argument that China maybe can offer you money, but we can offer you a way uh, towards democracy and greater pluralism, I don't think there is much to that argument. I think that is mostly sloganeering. Whenever somebody is writing an analysis about India and China's engagement in Africa, they will always tack this on at the end that, oh, you know, India is democratic. India is an example of a de uh, recently decolonized non-Western country who has successfully experimented with democracy and that experience can somehow benefit the Africans. I think that, 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 is, empty, that is empty posturing. Uh, really, what the Africans are looking for is not more democracy. What they're looking for is more development, greater prosperity. And, 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 I, and I, th I think the Chinese um, can offer that. The argument for India that I find perhaps a little bit more convincing is that uh, this, this old sort of metaphor of you know, teaching a man how to fish. Some analysts argue that the Chinese are simply giving fish to the Africans. They go there, they build roads, they build schools, they build infrastructure, and uh, in return, they take resources. So you can argue that that's just simply uh, giving the Africans fish. Some people have argued that India is in a position to actually improve the quality rather than quantity of economic growth in Africa by uh, promoting human capital, intellectual capital. And a great example of that is this new Pan-Africa e-network that is being set up with the, with the help of India in cooperation with the African Union. And that is really about encouraging uh, high, uh, fast internet, fast fiber optic connections between 53 African nations so that they can collaborate on uh, medicine and telemedicine and sort of uh, high tech uh, infrastructure like that. So perhaps I think that's a bit more, a sort of comparative advantage that mm -hmm. India has over China in Africa. Well, well Kobus, let me get your thoughts on this first on two points. One, do you think, you know, Vijay's kind of set it out, you know, the argument, not necessarily saying, Vijay, this is what you believe, but the argument is saying that is really a choice between, you know, political pluralism that the Indians can bring to Africa and, you know, economic efficiency without, you know, c civil and political rights that the Chinese can bring. Do you see it as such a binary choice between the two that it is, you know, black or it's white and that's the choice that uh, that Africans have to make? 
No, I think, you know, kind of, I think what, what will probably happen in, in, in the end is that, you know, Africans will, you know, kind of take from both sides, um, you know, as, as the most successful, um, you know, African economies have managed also kind of play off both uh, the US and, and China against each other and, and kind of get the both, the best from both, you know. Um, I think it, it's possible for African countries to, you know, to, to get, you know, whatever's kind of strengths from from each of those um i do agree that that i think that that they do have different strengths um you know and, and uh, i might agree with you that um that it's that india you know kind of is I, well that's not really what you said but you know kind of i don't think that that india is without its strengths in africa one of one of the strengths is that um you know africa has many african country, countries have long histories with indian diasporas yep. um and they have generally been more engaged in political and kind of and public life uh, in in Africa, I think, than their Chinese counterparts. Um, so in South Africa, for example, both the Indian and the Chinese diasporas have been here for a long time, for more than a hundred years. But uh, you know, the Indians have been involved in demo democracy politics very, very kind of enthusiastically, and they kind of managed to to kind of carve a niche for themselves socially, not only economically. Um, you know, and, and you know, kind of one of my old bugbears is you know is, is cosmopolitanism in Africa and I think you know kind of Indians like for example Lebanese communities in Africa are are uh, very significant contributors to a, a kind of a, a Africa-wide culture of cosmopolitanism and I think that's also super valuable yeah just a reminder that there are large Indian populations you know dating back to the British colonial period stretching mostly along East Africa from uh, from Kenya Tanzania Uganda all the way down to to South Africa of course Uganda being one of the flashpoints in the 1970s when Idi Amin uh, you know, it, it, you basically expelled uh, the Indian population. But let's not forget to, Kobus, to your point, that one of the, the great uh, South African Indian immigrants was none other than Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, so, so that tradition Absolutely. does yeah. date back a long yeah, time. Yeah. Vijay, let me, let me get a point from you, and I'm going to play the devil's advocate here a little bit. And this is not necessarily to take a pro-China attitude, but this is to kind of highlight what we, you know, I'm an outside observer. I'm not a specialist on India at all. But, you know, half the country was blacked out, you know, a few weeks ago. This is a country with a political system that and I just I, it does not look like it works in terms of serving its people. This is a country with 30 to 40 percent, you know, in desperate, dire poverty that does not have toilets uh, sufficient for its people, um, does not have an infrastructure that is up to its uh, its namesake as a rising power in Asia. Um, all the kind of key metrics that emerging African countries look to in terms of what they want to build for their own societies, India seems to be failing. And this, to me, is a failure of the political system. So the very thing that India is trying to pride itself on is... To me, just my kind of amateur observation, the one thing that it's not delivering, um, b both in politics and economics. So it's a little, what are, what are your thoughts on that? And if you were an African leader, what is the point that Kobus is saying that you can take the best of both? What is the thing that you get from India for Africa? Well, again, even though you are not a specialist, I think you have laid out uh, quite strong criticisms of India and her political system. And it would be difficult to sort of come back to uh, that. But I, I will respond like this, that India and China really re represent two different governance philosophies, uh, two different models. 
and i would agree with kobus in saying that african countries do not necessarily have to choose between them they should no. be free to engage with both the indians and the chinese on the basis of an equal partnership but as the bloomberg business week column by anil gupta and hai and wang uh, that we discussed earlier points out india and africa have much more in common in terms of historical inheritance both have low income levels vast internal diversity and a common colonial inheritance which has gifted them or rather cursed them with the widespread use of english at least amongst the political and economic elite and i think the most striking example of this is bharti airtel and i quote from the article bharti airtel found it easy to become the second largest mobile operator in africa and has successfully transferred its frugal innovation model from india to africa Meanwhile, China Mobile has had great difficulty figuring out how it could create any value by acquiring an operator in Africa. So, so that's uh, that's really the uh, the point. China's political and economic engagement with Africa is state-led. Thus, there is a greater synergy between what the Chinese companies are doing in Africa and the political objectives of the Chinese state. Chinese state can define objectives, and companies in Africa can pursue them. India's engagement. is often led by the private sector by mm-hmm. large companies such as tata and bharti telecom and the indian government and in indian state is kind of playing catch up uh so that that's really the point and i just have one last thing i will say as as again as as you and kobus pointed out there's a long history of an economically dynamic indian diaspora uh, in africa i mean durban in south africa is i think one of the largest indian cities that exists outside of india and again as you said this has a somewhat problematic angle with the expulsion of uganda's indian community in the 1970s by the amin but i don't think that by itself is a major issue for india africa engagement no i mean let's not forget dar es salaam and nairobi um, as well have large um, populations in this i read this this piece by a guy called constantino javier um from 2010 where he was he making he was making the point that um in in india there um the you know um politicians tend to be divided in relation to to, to how they look in china's engagement in africa in a, a, a kind of a hawkish group that wants to um copy what china is doing um and then uh, a more liberal group who who is refusing comparisons with china and try to in, to emphasize india's kind of absolute uniqueness in its interactions with africa is that still true in 2012 is or has did you see kind of different kind of models emerging within india in relation to china and africa uh yes i i also read that article and i think the author uh, the, the terms that the author uses is uh, emulationists and singularists so emulationists yes. are the ones that want to emulate the sort of 19th century version of power politics in africa this new great game in africa where yes. instead of european powers it's china and india who are the new sort of colonialists so the, those are sort of real politic and then there are the singularists who think that india is really unique and it doesn't have to sort of compete with china i think the author's point which is probably well taken by all of us is that india has to emphasize its comparative advantages in africa and as as i outlined earlier in the discussion one of those is uh inculcating human capital rather than these big ticket infrastructure projects so we we can build some infrastructure but we obviously cannot uh, uh compete with the sort of large capital and large uh, resources that the chinese can bring to bear so so 
uh, fine, do a little bit of infrastructure, but main thing is building on human capital. I, there are thousands of African students, for example, who come to India for, for mid-career training or even for undergraduate, postgraduate studies. So, you know, to focus on that. And also from the, and I'm put, taking off my analyst's cap here and putting on my Indian national interest cap. I think <laughs> the, uh, the sort of India, for, for, at least in terms of rhetoric, India must emphasize its democratic credentials and its pluralist credentials because India has a lot of soft power when it comes to that. So just if I was an Indian diplomat or if I was an Indian businessman trying to establish links in Africa, I would first emphasize, I would emphasize three things. I would emphasize, yes, we can build some infrastructure, number one, our private companies can do that. Number two, we can really assist you with human capital with frugal with what is called frugal innovation we can help you with frugal innovation in human capital number two and number three uh, we are a democracy and you in, instead of emulating china's uh, what's it called autocratic political structure you want to emulate our more pluralist uh, way of doing things our more, our more federalist form of government so these are the really three points that I would, that I think India in presenting itself to Africa must put forward. Now, it's interesting you bring that up because one of the areas of real potential is is in the tech sector. Um, and as the continent does get more wired, better connections are coming, particularly to East Africa. Already, South Africa has some pretty de- decent connections. Um, that's going to open up all sorts of different opportunities, particularly in the call center business. So Ivory Coast, for example, is a major call center for France um, and other French-speaking countries. And that's certainly an area where India has enormous expertise. And really, the development of the African tech sector as a whole is something that I think, obviously, India can bring a lot to it. Just one very minor correction, uh, you know, Vijay. When you talked about the kind of parallels between India and uh, and Africa, uh, you know, colonialism, a shared colonial history, uh, and also a very large kind of diverse poor population, which is something that the that they both have in common. That's, of course, something that the Chinese also put forward. They were the victims of colonialization, and they, too, have quite a diverse population, though less than, say, India and Africa. So just uh, two very, very minor points, because I know that we'll get our Chinese fans who will probably kind of argue that one to, to the end. But let's kind of quickly talk about this idea of what you've brought up, this I, you know, this is, and this is, I think, the focus of your studies. This idea of of modern Confucianism, and two states in particular in Africa seem to be going down this path. And this is, you know, Paul Kagame's Rwanda, and also up in Ethiopia as well, where they are are modernizing, but they are not Westernizing. And this is a very important distinction. This is one distinction that Martin Jack brings up in his book When China Rules the World. That increasingly China's economic and political model. Um, are being seen almost in the context of a, of a war for ideas. And this is something that when I talk with American diplomats, their eyes just kind of glaze over because the Americans have this very <laughs> kind of, you know, American-centric view of the world. Well, of course everybody wants to be like us. Of course everybody wants yes, to have the open yes, democracy yes. like us. And, and Americans really struggle to have the humility to say that there is a battle of ideas out there. And before I get your response, I just, well, I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before, and I'll, I'd just like to kind of reframe it and just get your kind of feedback on it in the context of India, China, Africa. So 
There is the kind of religious extremism, and we're seeing that in Mali right now. We're seeing it in parts of Sudan. We're seeing it uh, across the Middle East. This is, you know, the fundamentalist religious ideal. There is, and even in parts of Nigeria as well. Then we've got the kind of American liberalism. Uh, this is this kind of, you know, IMF, World Bank. This is the Washington Consensus. The European model's a little bit different, but basically in the same page when it comes to development on the American side, which is open markets, dem democracy, civil political rights ahead of social and economic development. And then you have the Chinese kind of model. And the Chinese model, of course, is you know far more authoritarian. Uh, civil and political rights are second to social and economic rights. And, and when you talk to Americans and you talk to the West and the IMF and those big institutions, they believe that the battle for ideas was settled with the fall of the Berlin Wall. They do not see the world in context of, 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 of this kind of ideas, these choices that people are, are, have to make or are making, not that they have to make, but they are making. So that's my little rambling kind of setup to this. This is what you're kind of pursuing in your studies, this idea of, you know, of modernization, westernization, non-Western societies, how they're integrating these different ideas. Talk to us a little bit in the context of Africa what this means and, and how countries are looking at India, China, the U.S., and the West as a buffet that they can pick from. Yes, again, I think you have framed the issue very well. I really like the comment of the eyes of American diplomats glazing over when you talk about this new battle for ideas. I, I think the weakness of the West is that it even fails to recognize that such a battle of ideas exists. Yeah, they don't get and, it. And, and they're sort of still stuck, as you say, in the Cold War, post-Cold War consensus that this battle of ideas was resettled. So yes, I, I completely agree with the framing of that. And if I can give a slight sort of historical perspective on this, uh, I mean, when, when colonization occurred in Africa and in Asia, it really robbed non-Western societies of, of confidence. And so when um, non-Western societies emerged out of uh, uh, formal uh, colonialism, they were very eager to ape everything that the West did. But as we are living a few decades on from uh, the decades of decolonization, non-Western societies are increasing in confidence and they think maybe the Western way of free markets, uh, universal rights and universal sort of suffrage is perhaps not the uh, not the best way to go. And China is an example of a country who 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 is very successful when it comes to economic development, despite not having a civil and political rights uh, and universal suffrage. It's managed to do very well. And thus, when because, the, because of the focus of this podcast is Africa, Africa is, is an emerging continent and it looks at the various models that are on display. It looks at the Washington consensus embodied by uh, North America and Europe. It looks at India, which is, an, which is a large non-Western democratic country. And it looks at China, which is a large non-Western successful non-democratic country. And it thinks to itself, or, or specific countries think, that which model uh, shall we go for? Now, some people will 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 prefer the, the Indian experience, but countries like Rwanda, for example, Paul Kagame's Rwanda will will go more towards the China. And as you rightly put it, it's a buffet that they can uh, they can pick from. And I fear that they might end up eating more at the Chinese table than the Indian table. 
Well, why would you fear that? At the end of the day, there and, yeah. and Kobus, I'll get to you in a quick second. Um, the idea that you know the Chinese, for their lack, for whatever their lack of political development, and it has been atrocious. Their human rights record is nothing to be proud of. So I, I am not saying this in defense of the Chinese. However, they have brought more people out of poverty than any other country in the history of humanity in a shorter period of time. They have, you know, you know. So just it seems like there's a lot to offer there. Kobus, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, sorry, sorry, Kobus. Go, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Just respond to that, and then no, I'll get um, to you Kobus. Know, um, you know, kind of. I think. I think what uh, there there might be a kind of a slight slight difference in 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 the way that uh, the way that these that the combination between political rights and economic growth is is phrased in East Asia and in the West. Um, you know, kind of. I remember. Um, interviewing a, a, an economist in South Korea um, and he um, his kind of way that he kind of put it forward was that that um, economic rights freedom of speech and so on is something it's 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 a it's a stage in evolution um, in, in economic evolution um, and he made the point that that South Korea obviously also had a, a military government for a long time um, you know kind of they they managed to to kind of make the the kind of particularly the kind of infrastructure jumps that they needed to make the you know kind of the the the, the bulldozing forward and kind of putting in the train lines and putting in the kind of the airports where they need to go and so on um, because they had central central uh, government and that because they didn't have to deal so much with unions and with you know with with lots of of, of kind of um, stakeholders in society um and then at some stage the the economy became sophisticated enough that they needed to start moving into it as services design and so on and then they needed to have more more freedom of speech and they needed to have more political rights in order to make that jump into a more sophisticated economy and he he was making the point that china would have to go through that that kind of change as well I think from the West, there, there's more to a tendency to see those rights as prerequisites for any kind of development. You know, that you're not going to have any kind of development or good governance without those rights in place. And that in a way, there's a kind of a, a, a kind of a thinking in the West that it's those rights are kind of a, a kind of a magic pull, you know, kind of that you need to insert into the society in order to have it grow economic development right. um you know and i think yeah it's, it's a kind of almost like almost like fertilizer that you that you need to kind of work into your into your soil in order to have something to grow there but that's a little um, and, bit you of know, the, i think i think africa then you know needs to to choose between these two different views of like when in the development of, of the country these things kick in and uh, you know i think kagame seems to be thinking later on as, as a way for him to go yeah but you know that that's a little bit in my view of the hubris of the western ideal here which is saying you have to you know you will eventually get to political liberalization singapore proves you know to you know right there in black and white that you that the two are not linked you can have you yes. know a very yes. very high economic output yeah i agree i agree i agree with that i think uh, yeah, that is sort of I, 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 precisely that is a Western hubris that these rights will sort of uh, come even if they're not present right now they will uh, they will come in the future. I simply cannot see China instituting any of these political no. or civil rights. No, that's a Western in the Western in fantasy. the foreseeable future. That's right. As Martin Jacques pointed out, uh, non-Western societies, East Asian societies. Specifically, China have a much more positive attitude towards the state uh, than Western countries do or Western societies do. I mean, Western, in Western societies, the state is just something to be tolerated and it just provides security and it leaves individual citizens to go about their business. But as Jacques pointed out in China, the state is seen as a member of the family. It is a good 
and thus they are the chinese are even willing to tolerate great excesses of the state as we saw during the cultural revolution and the great leap forward but still continue to believe in the transformative power of the state yeah what in one kind of point that's, on that i think that's where that's where kind of the the martin jacques distinction starts breaking down when you look at africa because i don't think that that africa has either one of those two i think in africa the state is much much more problematic um the state is a bit, in africa the state is a bit like the, your drunk uncle who kind of ruins your wedding you know kind of it's it's almost completely a burden and it's completely dysfunctional even in even in countries in africa where where the state is running relatively smoothly like in, in south africa there's like frequently almost 100% negative view of of the role of the state even yeah. by people who actually voted for that government so you know kind of that i think is is very different between both both the west and china yeah and, and yeah you know i actually agree with that i think China has had a long history with the state. I'm not an expert on Chinese history, but I think the concept of sovereignty and the centralized uh, state has been in 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 China for millennia. Whereas in Africa, it's a relatively new occurrence. So, so the state is definitely a lot more problematic in Africa, which just helps to make the argument that Africa doesn't really have to choose an external model. It's going to have to evolve its own governance philosophy, which cannot be provided either by the West or by China. Yeah, and uh, just one final point, Kobus, that we've talked about this in the context of Ethiopia and Rwanda, but there's also an interesting development going on in South Africa in your neighborhood. I mean, I think it was about six months ago that the senior ANC delegation went to Beijing, um, and the relationship between the ANC and uh, the Chinese government has gotten a lot closer and it, it seems like you know Jacob Zuma has is looking more and more to China not only for investment but also for some some political modeling as well is that a fair characterization yes I think so um, how exactly that's going to shake out we'll only know a little bit later this year when the when the ruling party has its its uh, you know its big and um, its big Congress which they have every few years in order to decide how you know, to, to build a roadmap, how they're going to go ahead. But there are people within the ANC, like not necessarily even Zuma himself, but people, uh, real kind of very strong rising stars who who have so far, the one guy I've, you know, I've spoken with, he has, has made, uh, you know, kind of trips between, between Johannesburg and Beijing, uh, maybe as 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 often as almost once a month, you know, kind of he's, he's very very pro-China, and he um and he very much sees this Chinese developmentalist state model as as the one for South Africa. Um, and at the same time, there's also moves within South Africa to try and clamp clamp down on the press, particularly. Um, it, it, they keep kind of bringing it up and then, you know, kind of then the whole, you know, the society freaks out and everyone is very scared and then they kind of, you know, they, they're forced to kind of let it drop a little bit again and then, but they never let it drop completely. Mm-hmm. So they keep bringing it up. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so it seems like they kind of, they, they want to head in that direction. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, kind of whether they're going to be able to do it, this is a big issue and that we'll probably see, you know, kind of what, what happens with their big party conference later this year. Well, just to wrap this up, you know, it's really, as, as just to summarize what both you and Vijay have been saying throughout this conversation, that this is actually a very exciting time in African politics because no longer um, are, are, are governments or societies dependent on the West, that people actually have the choice now 
to pursue their own destinies. They can take a little bit from the Chinese, a little bit from the Indians, a little bit from the South Koreans. Let's not forget, you you know, Vijay, you brought up the, the South Korean example. And in Rwanda, you know, SK Telecom is one of the largest investors. And there's been a large South Korean political delegation in Rwanda as well. So models are coming from all over the place. And I think, again, it's in this very kind of narrow view of the world when you see uh, you know, Hillary Clinton going to Africa and you see, uh, you know, Tony Blair and you see other Western uh, diplomats and, and heads of state saying, you know, be afraid of the other. Um, don't, you know, go down that path with the other and that the West is somehow the savior. And I think that is, uh, that, that, that's a fallacy. And we've talked about that a number of times on, on the show. So, so that'll do it for this edition of the China and Africa podcast. Vijay, just want to thank you again for a wonderful conversation and really for stepping up on our Facebook page to volunteer. And we want to invite anyone to follow Vijay's lead. If you've got an idea, or you've got a paper, or if you've got uh, a particular expertise that you'd like to kind of bring to our attention, please post it up on our wall on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Vijay, you've got a number of different projects that are going on uh, online. Where can people kind of find you? Are they on Twitter or websites if they want to stay in touch with what you're doing? Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, my Twitter handle is Einvijay, that's E-I-N-V-I-J-A-Y. And uh, you can find some of my uh, blog posts uh, on, on www.centerright.in. Otherwise, just Google my name, Vijay Vikram. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, and of course, uh, Kobus, where can people find you on Twitter? Um, I'm at Stadenesque, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. Excellent. And you can find me, I'm at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting almost every day on China, Africa. So if you're not really in the mood to kind of, you know, scour the web for the for the latest headlines, I'm putting up about four to six links a day. And uh, so putting all the top stories in the headlines. And of course, you can always follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. You can find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and also on our blog at thechinaafricaproject.com. So thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast.